Through centuries of resilience, Native Americans and Indigenous peoples have developed profound healing practices that address both mental and spiritual well-being. Psychologists have much to learn and can draw invaluable lessons from Indigenous cultures by cultivating deeper connections and honoring their approaches to healing. When was the last time we asked, how does one conceptualize healing? One method that embodies a culturally responsive care is the sweetgrass method. And what is it? And how might we embrace its methodology when working with Native American and Indigenous communities? Additionally, how can we be intentional in creating a graduate-level educational environment that prioritizes the cultural needs of students? For Native American students pursuing mental health studies, seeking community support is a vital step in their academic journey. So what is a potential organization to get connected with? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Tsen. As part of our Native American Heritage Month, today we have Dr. Mark Standing Eagle Bays. He is a descendant of the Mohawk and Pawnee people and a member of the Top Pilan Kawaitakan Mission Indian. Dr. Bays is trained as a general psychologist focusing on mental health behaviors and psychological functions. He holds a master's as a school psychologist and a second master's in counseling. Clinically trained, Dr. Bays works as a school psychologist, licensed chemical dependency counselor, and is a certified cognitive behavioral therapist. Given his experience in culturally informed methodologies, Dr. Bayes weaves Western and indigenous approaches with marginalized populations across indigenous country. As such, Dr. Bayes has developed an approach called the sweet grass method, focusing on weaving Western approaches and cultural methods for clients into his practice among tribal communities across Indian country. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Bayes is an assistant professor in the clinical and counseling program at Bemidji State University and is the president-elect of the Society of Indian Psychologists and a proud member of the American Psychological Association, National Association of School Psychologists, and National Association of Addiction Professions. Dr. Bayes is a published author and a national speaker. He also mentors graduate and undergraduate American Indian and Alaska Native students majoring in psychology. Today, Dr. Bayes will be discussing culturally responsive care and mental health equity with indigenous communities and share with us some of the amazing things that the Society of Indian Psychologists is involved with. Dr. Bayes, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Nawin and Nalatsam for having me uh, here today. Thank you. Can you walk us through your journey and share with us any memorable events and circumstances that influenced how you got into this work? Absolutely. And what a wonderful question. It has uh, been a journey that hasn't always been filled with 
clarity and appreciation. Uh, the journey for me uh, wasn't always clear. Even throughout my academics, I always understood a Western position and thinking and learning as the correct way of what I did and what I wanted to do. First and foremost, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to help others specifically for my people, American Indian, Alaska Native people. And I was introduced to looking at opportunities and ways to helping those that were having substance use issues. So I wanted to be more proactive than reactive and thought the best way was to understand what addiction is about and or uh, mental health. So I registered and submitted applications to attend school. Wasn't always easy, but it was something that I knew I wanted to do to learn so I can be a driving force in positive change for our people. But this was done uh, through stories that were handed down actually and what our obligations were as, as indigenous people that we had an obligation to make a difference in positive change. And that started with my own family. And I was raised in the city, my dad being Native American, my mom, indigenous and Mexican and French. And I grew up with five siblings and we all lived off the res, but we knew that the valleys at home were placed on the importance of family and helping others. And the importance of always helping our people was something that was uh, was planted at a very young age. Uh, my dad served in the Navy and the sense of pride was enormous, you know, with, with our family. But there was some shared experiences that were difficult to swallow. And I'm speaking of discrimination and racism and trauma. So I'm trying to understand where I fit in making this positive change um, in seeing what my parents had to go through. But those stories of empowerment impacted me. And I knew that the pain that my parents and relatives had endured actually paved an opportunity for me to focus on what my obligation was in hopes to make a difference uh, for the people around me, my community, and of course, uh, our generation. So acknowledging those stories that my parents handed down as well as grounding the ceremonies to continue what we need to do and obligated uh, really helped in those steps and grounding my steps and completing my academics. And, and I mentioned earlier, always having this understanding and being taught from a Western perspective was something that I knew in grad school that I was having some internal battles going on. This is what I'm told. This is the best way. It needs to be evidence-based. And why isn't working for my own people? Why isn't that working? Uh, so it was something that, that I knew that there was some disconnect. I needed to finish. I needed to pass that finish line and then knew that I needed to make a difference. But to think of those words that empowered me to keep going was actually the stories that I heard from my own parents and their experiences, uh, but to never give up. And it was something that, uh, that I will never forget. And I continue to honor my family and our people in what I do. And I feel extremely blessed. Dr. Bates, thank you so much for sharing that. As you were describing this, I had a couple of reactions. One is really a commitment 
and connection you have with your family and your community. And you went beyond just serving your people. The work that you're doing, my understanding is it's actually influenced other groups and communities with the Sweetgrass Method. You're mentoring students. You are also president-elect of Society of Indian Psychologists. You are doing amazing work. Mm, thank you. And may I ask, is there a strand, a story that your family shared with you that kept you going? There's There are many strands, and they're very personal strands. And and we continue to be survivors of whatever happens. We're resilient and always remember that we are still here today. And it's important that we continue to fight for our people. And just those words, it, it's never it's never faded. It hasn't been easy going through the programs where you didn't have that support as an indigenous student. But I knew I had to cross that finish line because this wasn't anything compared to what my grandparents went through. This was school, but in, in the stories and time that hearing that they were running from their life, they were fearing for, for their life. And the stressors that I had was, I don't think I'm getting support from my professor. It was totally different. Mm -hmm. So that motivation, that level of, of survival, but also the level of, of honoring. Yes, is something that I knew I had an obligation to honor my family, my parents, my people, now my family, my children. So I'm resilient and I continue to fight the good fight, like my dad says, and continue to be there like that. And there's some other deep stories of discrimination that through those stories, uh, I am a fighter and I am still here. I'm resilient. And it is important to honor. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you finished in spite of the challenges in spite, in spite of the messages that may have been implicit, which is the Western methodology is the right way. And then being able to challenge that assumption, finish your degree, and now create something wonderful. And so with our podcast, you know, one mm -hmm. of our main goal for have you on board is obviously celebrating Native American Heritage Month and really honoring psychologists like yourself who are making mm -hmm. a contribution to this field. And when you talk about culturally responsive mental health care, how would you define that? Well, what comes up for you that you think we as psychologists should know? That's a really, really good question. And I'm not sure when the last time I did hear that of what do we need to know? And I keep thinking about cultural humility. Yes, we have a degree on our wall indicating that we took some tests Hey, we passed, we wrote some papers, we passed them. But personality-wise, it doesn't tell us how we're gonna disseminate those services to the population that we're serving. When, when I hear culturally responsive uh, approaches or methodologies, it's not the same as cultural sensitivity or cultural awareness. It's what we know, what we are aware and how sensitive of the information that we're gathering. But how are we gonna respond to that? We could be still culturally sensitive and culturally aware, but choose not to respond in a cultural way because I know better, you don't, I'm a doctor, you're not, I've learned this methodology this way. And I'll just say in a Western perspective approach, 
is the way, and this is how I'm going to choose to uh, disseminate my practice for, for my clients. And if it's not working, we may think it's the client. Again, uh, I'm licensed, I have my PhD, I think I know better. If it's not working, it has to be them. So culturally responsive is how we respond culturally. And I, and I do want to uh, preface the Western perspective uh, and, and approaches are some uh, approaches that I've embraced because there's a lot there that I believe in. However, I am tailoring what I know that has been working, that is evidence-based, and tailoring it for my people and how it would work for my people. So I would approach that particular situation in a way where I would incorporate culturally responsive understandings and cultural humility with maybe some of Western theory and tailor it so that it works for my people. So that that responsive approach is how we respond in knowing our limits, what we understand culturally of the client that we are working with, and how do we respond effectively uh, so that that cultural responsive is not just saying, okay, I, I don't want to offend their tribe, and but I'm still going to use my same Western-based approaches. So it really tends to look at the importance of embracing the culture of the client that we may be working with and understanding our own limitations of what we don't know. And it's okay to say that I want to know as much as I can so I can help you help yourself versus it's just one way, which is the the normal approach of some clinicians indicating that this is what is going to be done, how it's going to be done, and, and do not take the cultural uh, responsive approach at, at all. And we see that it's not effective. Hmm. So you're also adjusting the Western view and interventions, understanding our limitations and that our clients may not come from that cultural viewpoint or that mm -hmm. cultural stance, especially if we're working with clients who have been marginalized mm -hmm. or clients of color. So do you want to talk about your sweetgrass method? Sure. Uh, yes. And, and and I did want to add into when just some more information, just for clarity, uh, when considering, you know, culturally appropriate, culturally responsive uh, mental health care, that it is vital to understand cultural views and traditions and practices related to healing and wellness, which far predate contact with Europeans directly from and or for tribal community members. So there's so many different tribes. It's not just one tribe. So American Indian, Alaska Native beliefs and practices vary by tribe and may include prayer, ceremony, storytelling as a method of, of passing on traditions and so forth. But even looking at interactions with a traditional healer, daily practices to sustain balance and wellness, it's important to know that there are differences there's almost 600 recognized tribes and those that are not recognized. And it's important to know that we do not do all the same things and we are not all alike. So it, it's it's important just to have that, that bit of information. So I, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, uh, thanks for that comprehensive response because it does make me think 
we do need to take a, the importance of us taking a step back and creating the space to learn about the client's cultural experience and more importantly ask about the healing practices because we're in the field of psychology and we're trying to deliver clinical interventions in hopes to make people feel better and then so how do we heal and everyone has their method of healing and it, you know i can't help but have the reaction of when you're sharing your views western psychotherapy is a very singular focused lens of healing and we potentially miss sight on all the facets mm -hmm. all the different ways of how healing occurs so thanks for sharing that yes i did want to and it just made me think of, of the question earlier in looking at uh, applying western approaches and incorporating indigenous methodologies for the client and it was for that reason that the struggles and the frustrations that i was experiencing working with my own clients is where the sweetgrass method came to be and it was just that and i knew that i was not the only one uh, that there were many indigenous practitioners that were utilizing uh, western approaches and incorporating traditional methodologies for the clients to make sure that the services that were being rendered were effective and the sweet grass itself is is grass that's collected and braided and used for for prayers for cleansing uh, so we use this this herb the sweet grass as a cleansing so when i was thinking how i could develop something for our people by our people i wanted to use something that we use to cleanse ourselves when we approach uh, others as sacred so first and foremost when we are applying this particular methodology as a sweetgrass that we are approaching our clients as sacred. And it's not to say that our clients are doing everything sacred. There's a lot of things that, of course, they, they, they have areas of need, but that we as clinicians come to this, this moment uh, with our client as a sacred moment and have an obligation to be in a position to make those positive and healing changes. So. The Sweetgrass is a culturally responsive, community-based participatory approach for practitioners to analyze their methods, uh, recognize ranges of needs in their capabilities as well as understandings, and deliver, again, uh, a culturally responsive approach uh, with their clients that uh, are American Indian Alaska Native. And the braid with the Sweetgrass method, when divided or, uh, or unbraided, the strands have a representation uh, and a particular approach. So the first strand in the braid is an introspection strand. And just keep in mind, in every strand, there are many strands. So it's not just one way, as I mentioned, that there's not just one tribe. There's so many different personalities. But the first strand is the introspection. And this is ourselves as a clinician, as we look at how we are, how we're grounded uh, with a cultural humility, how we take care of ourselves so it's it, the, the the first strand is where we are at when we are working with uh, the clients uh, that we serve the second strand is communication and that communication is with others how we collaborate with other practitioners how we consult with other practitioners but also the communication we have with the client and the last one it is is just as important but i bold this last 
uh, strand and its continuity. And the continuity is critical because this is the services that we never give up or we do not burn out in, uh, that it's not a honeymoon phase and then it just it fizzles out and we do not continue to provide culturally responsive services for our clients. We just give up. This last strand uh, that's braided with the other two is a continuum of culturally responsive services and or care. So it's a continuum, it just continues. It, it doesn't stop. So we continue learning about our client in their health, in their wellness. So it's something that that obligates us as practitioners to continue to learn, to continue to provide those services and or approaches. So the sweetgrass as it's braided together also is another analogy of a blade of grass and the blade of grass uh, i know here in uh, minnesota uh, it's snowing off and on but when we step on a blade of grass it bends but eventually that blade of grass bends back and this is uh, an example for us as practitioners that there may be some times where we feel like our egos may be crushed or we just had a bad session or our clients we're really angry and upset with us regardless of what that of what took place that we too will bend back we may feel like we're stepped on but know that we need to be just as flexible as the grass with our clients as the blade of grass in the sweet grass so again it is sacred we use this to smudge ourselves it's braided together in this particular approach of sweet grass the introspection, uh, the self, the communication, of course, the collaboration and consultation and the continuity with ongoing uh, continuum of culturally responsive services uh, for our clients. And, and again, we need to be flexible so, and we need to know what to change, whether it's a treatment plan. It's not just one cookie cutter plan that we're flexible in seeing how we can help that particular individual and tailor uh, the services for their a success uh, on their path of this red road. Wow. Well, thanks for, for sharing that that method with us. And I will link in the show notes the, I think you have an article published? Yes, that's correct. Okay, yeah, let's link that on the show notes so folks can download it, read more about that. And I'm also thinking about the, the amazing work that the Society of Indian Psychologists is involved with. In fact, we had a uh, recent speaker, Dr. Fetter, who mentioned signing up. Uh, you know, that's how she learned about this community. And so that's evidence that, you know, this, this organization, this professional organization is really supporting the work of indigenous psychologists. So as a president-elect, do you want to share with me uh, what you sure. would like listeners to know about? Sure, absolutely. And and a shout out to uh, Dr. Fetter. She's another Mohawk. So I would just want to give a shout out. But she's uh, an amazing practitioner that is doing amazing work. And I'm extremely proud of, of everything that she's doing. Um, for the Society of Indian Psychologists, I think about, uh, first and foremost, the mission uh, of this society uh, and it's to advocate for psychological well-being of american indian and alaska native peoples and to advance knowledge about indigenous psychology and and the purpose behind what 
these steps are taking towards that is to create opportunities, a forum where the SIP members can network and support one another on those moments and or days or experiences when they have other indigenous practitioners or students that can help provide and or guide or motivate or encourage uh, and support uh, in the end uh, the members um, to continue to move forward in what uh, they are doing. But it's also to provide an outreach uh, and membership to American Indian Alaska Native uh, psychology students. And I can also share a little bit about the membership for those that may be interested but also advancing the understanding uh, of psychology of American Indian people. Uh, so this is a great and a wonderful uh, place and opportunity to gather and to gain that information. And also furthering development or developing research uh, methods and treatments and interventions, models that are ethically and culturally appropriate and sensitive and responsive to American Indian and Alaska Native people. So those points and purpose is something that we drive and the importance of what we are doing as a society as well as contribute to the scientific understanding and feature of ethnicity culture and class among american indian alaska native people and i think also to have a facilitation opportunity of professional exchange such as this and or any other concerning our relevant policy or practice and research related to American Indian Alaska Native people. We do have an annual SIP convention that, that happens every uh, June, uh, and it is a, a wonderful opportunity not only to gain uh, knowledge, uh, but also to network uh, and gather uh, as people to support and to provide uh, opportunities of connectedness. Major missions. Uh, Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, now, may I ask, does for membership, does one oh. must be a Native American or indigenous uh, person to be a member? No, actually, you do not. Regular membership is really uh, inexpensive. I think it's it's $50, which are the annual dues and they're for any professional working in the area related to Native American Indian psychology. There could be uh, licensed uh, uh, counselors, uh, psychologists, nurse practitioners, social workers, licensed substance abuse counselors. And I know several different uh, professionals. Uh, so it's not just Native psychology individuals or doctors in that are psychologists. Uh, in there, but uh, yes, and then we also have annual dues for our elders, and it's $35. And then we have for student membership is $10 a year. So I think it's something that we're really excited about uh, keeping the cost down so we can again uh, provide and create an opportunity for the members so they can network and support uh, each other. Wow, wow. Um out of curiosity, as we're talking about this, um, I was just thinking about, can we sponsor students, like student membership? That's a really good question. I I want to say, yes, you can. Uh, I know our university does hmm. for uh, students that, that, that can't afford it, uh, and, and we're able to do that. Yes, absolutely. All right. 
So, Dr. Bayes, a, a question I ask all the guest speakers on the show, and that is, in your career as a person of color, what were some challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? Some of the challenges was maybe the lack of understanding or support in who I was, uh, not what I was doing. Uh, and that was just being native and uh, expecting that I would have at least an understanding of equality uh, in, in what I was doing. Um, and I would speak just on my experience and my dissertation uh, that having a support is critical, especially in this particular uh, academic uh, journey was was extremely difficult for me in not having uh, that support and or understanding, uh, especially during ceremony. Some of the ceremonies aren't an hour. Some of the ceremonies are four days. Sometimes we don't have our academic institutions that are flexible and like the train is moving, you need to jump on or we're leaving you behind. So there were some instances where I felt that there were not a lot of cultural sensitivity uh, for what was happening. And in some areas, I felt like I, was, I wasn't there for family during times where I needed to uh, be there uh, because of ceremonial obligations. So it didn't just happen once, it happened several times and it, and it was pretty difficult, but getting through those steps uh, took having these deep conversations uh, with my family and the support of extended family members is was important to connect to my culture, even the ceremony, even prayer when I wasn't with the family. So it was something that was really key that I wherever I went that I took some of the medicine with me where I can still have my prayer and still uh, be grounded uh, uh, in, in, in what I was doing, but having my connection with my people and my ceremonies was very uh, important to help me get through those times of adversity. And it was those times where I really felt I needed more support than, than ever. But turning towards my family and, and community and ceremony uh, really helped offset some of those stressors uh, in my life as when I was working through my dissertation. Wow, it's uh, it's amazing. It's unfortunate that you know, it's almost as though, as a minoritized group, any sort of spiritual, religious, cultural practice has to be put on the wayside because we're following, as you said, this train that keeps going. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that for folks who are listening that we do actually start to be more inclusive, even in a syllabus, you know, when we're developing programs, if there are certain uh, holidays, certain ceremonies, certain days that you need to take off, please just let us know as faculty members so we can try to coordinate and really work with you. Mm -hmm. This isn't the first time that this issue has been brought up uh, with the other speakers that we've had. And, you know, I, I am glad that you persisted. And so, I'm wondering, do you have any final thoughts or how can we support you or the Society of uh, Indian Psychologists? 
So what I'd like to say, just how I would um, close uh, this session is thinking of professionals uh, working with indigenous communities, that they should uh, truly consider being culturally uh, sensitive and appropriate and responsible. Um, again, an example is just very important is to enter the community uh, respectfully, not bringing your own expectations, judgments, or making assumptions, you know, about the community. Quietly observe and wait until you're approached by members of the community and so forth. But it's important to have uh, those steps, those initial steps of building that relationship, you know, offer a hand when appropriate and so forth. But these points cannot happen if we're not grounded introspectively uh, with a sense of cultural humility as a guy, as practitioners. But, you know, um, we can even think all those psychologists and mental health practitioners uh, should understand their clients' uh, differing cultural perspectives, as I mentioned. Uh, and they should also remember that not everyone with the same ethnic or racial background has the same values. So in other words, practitioners should avoid cultural stereotypes um, oversimplified beliefs and, and really try to use to find a culture or as a group of people as who they are uh, and ask how we should address you. It's not just, uh, are you Indian? Are you native? It's usually by uh, our people, Tapilam, the people of the earth, Kwawiteka uh, Nation, the people of the earth, the Mission Indians in Texas. That's who we identified as when, when people ask. And it's appropriate to ask. And sometimes I'll say, yes, I'm Native, I'm American Indian, but it's important to have those understandings and uh, perspectives when working with Indigenous communities. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insight, your contributions, and being on the podcast, speaking with us today. So any final thoughts, anything that, you know, is there anything we can do to support you, Society of Indian Psychologists? If there's any questions, please go on to the website and I definitely will give you the link uh, to the website. You can find a little bit more out about who we are, what we do, what we are about, uh, how we support uh, one another like that. And I do want to thank you for giving me uh, an opportunity and a seat at this table to share my voice in areas of what I truly believe and what I'm doing that's that's important uh, for positive change and healing uh, for uh, for our people and having the opportunity to, to share that here. And I want to thank you and say Nawin and Nalatsam, uh, yes. Well, Dr. Bayes, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We'd love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Zen.